0: I
1: think we're all called. Every single person is called um, to do something, to be a part of, I think, a greater plan. I'd say what a capital P, right? That, you know, God has has provided for us to heal the world. Everybody has a role in that. doesn't matter who you are. Um, but you have to listen for what your role is.
2: Hey there, everybody. My name is Tom Bushlack, and thanks for tuning in to Episode 9 of Contemplate This, Conversations on Contemplation and Compassion. This interview is with Dr. Larita Coleman-Brown, and she describes herself on her site as an embodied spirit, writer, speaker, heart and kidney transplant recipient, former psychology professor, and I consider each day to be a walk of gratitude, trust, and hope. I am a strong advocate of forgiveness as a healing force in the world and an essential tool for experiencing the peace and joy in your heart. I think you'll find it particularly interesting to note that she has survived both a heart and a kidney transplant because she has a strong spirit that shines through in her voice and I think this is a testament to the mysterious ways in which the body is empowered by surrendering to the deeper force of spirit or Sophia, as she likes to refer to her friend and guide. Dr. Brown is also a graduate of the Spiritual Guidance Program at the Shalem Institute, which was co-founded by Dr. Tilden Edwards, whom I interviewed in Episode 3. She now shares her wisdom with others through writing, speaking, spiritual direction, and leading retreats. You can, of course, find links to her website and publications, on the show notes page at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode 9. That's the word episode and the number 9. Larita has also become an advocate of the work of Howard Thurman. I've come to think of Howard Thurman as one of the most important figures in American history that very few people have heard of. In fact, I'm a little embarrassed to say that it wasn't until nearly 10 years into my academic career in theology and ethics that I even heard of Howard Thurman. His writings, in particular his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, first published in 1949, were an inspiration to the nonviolent activism of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the Civil Rights Movement. Legend has it that Dr. King always carried a copy of this book with him when he traveled and when he marched. Larita and I discuss Thurman's work and his ongoing significance for today extensively in this interview. And you can link to some of his works and a blog post by Larita introducing Thurman on the show notes as well, which again is at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode nine. Finally, I'm always grateful for your ongoing support for the podcast, which is really starting to grow fast. The last time I checked, we were close to over 12,000 total downloads. Uh, Reviews on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher are particularly helpful, especially if you leave a written review about why you love the show. So thanks to those of you who have already done this. And if you are so moved and you have the means at your disposal to do so, free will donations Help me to keep creating, hosting, and spreading the podcast and the other free resources on my website. You can donate at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash donate, and all donations are secure and your privacy is protected. A special thanks also to those of you who have already made a free will offering of this kind. All right, without further ado, let's get into my interview with Dr. Larita Coleman-Brown. Well, Dr. Brown, thank you for being here with us on the podcast for Contemplate This.
1: Great. Thank you so much for inviting me.
2: Yeah. So excited to hear your own story and contemplative practice and how you're sharing that with the world. So to get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, how you came into this world of contemplative prayer and and what you're up to now. All right. And you go as far back as you want, if you want to start with <laughs> where you grew up and all that fun stuff.
1: Well, I actually grew up in Pasadena, California, and as a little girl, I really was drawn to um, going outside. And I can remember as young as four years old, if there was wind, particularly a windy day, I would ask my you know mom or dad, could I go outside, and they were like... Uh, Okay, but uh, <laughs> how about uh, you put on a jacket? Um, and I and I think uh, I've just been a contemplative from the beginning but didn't have a name for that. Um, but I love to be outside with the birds and wind and um, all those kinds of things, that stillness in nature. Um, I think there were certain family members and friends who – thought I was a little weird and they would often uh, ask my parents, well, what is she doing out there? And, uh, you know, of course, I wasn't doing anything. I was just enjoying, um, sitting out in the wind. So, um, so I started, you know, very early with that. Um, I also went to Catholic school. So, uh, we did a lot of praying, right. (laughs) You know, I'm sure you may be aware of, um, praying, you know, as soon as we got there, throughout the day. And um, I'm very grateful to my parents for sending me to Catholic school um, because it gave me this orientation to God from a very early age. It was not something unusual to have this connection with uh, something other than myself. And so I think those two things, um, this... uh, this This desire to for stillness for um for uh, uh being outside in the wind, and somehow or later I realized that that was my earliest connections with uh spirit you know that to me that's the Holy Spirit moving through um the trees and the you know the the air out there so that and um the uh orientation towards God very early on, I think. Began me down this contemplative path, uh, pathway. Also, um, as you may be aware, you know, it's very uh, mass can be very quiet. Large churches can be very still. And so, you know, I, you know, would go to mass at various times. Sometimes early in the morning, even before school. And you know, there were again was that kind of quiet stillness. So I've been a lover of silence, of stillness. Um, of solitude for a long time. Mm.
2: It makes me, I started this collection a few years ago of noting um, words in other languages where the the meaning of wind, breath, and spirit is all in one word. And I, I've found about eight different languages so far where that's true. Um, so it's interesting that you just intuitively connected to um, to that sense of of presence or spirit in the wind, is there any particular moment that really stands out for you that you can remember like vividly as a child?
1: Um, not really I, I I think that it was the consistency that is any time, and of course, in Southern California, we have what are called the Santa Ana winds, which are a little bit warmer um, but Anytime I saw a nice gust of wind outside, um, the trees, you know, swaying um, in the wind, I just had this, I I don't even know how to describe it, but desire to go sit out there in the wind Mm. and just feel the wind sort of blow through my hair and on my face. Um, And I think uh, there perhaps were times when it was um, very settling i mean you know and there you know i didn't have the noises from um inside the house like the television that might be on or the pots and pans in the kitchen you know it was just quiet and you know i just i think i just felt nurtured by the spirit mm. uh, out there in the wind so it wasn't like there was a particular moment it was many moments <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anytime, yeah. anytime i you know i had a chance and of course uh, even now, if I if there's a nice breeze out there, um, I'm looking. If it's cool, I'm looking for a jacket. If not, I'm just gonna go out there and sit um, <laughs> and enjoy that you know enjoy that wind. I think that. Um, no, I kind of back off during the winter when it's freezing.
2: <laughs> well, I grew, and, up, uh, I grew up in Minnesota, and you really would have to back off in the winter. <laughs> you might yeah. lose fingers.
1: Yeah, but that wasn't quite the kind of wind that was uh,
2: yeah.
1: nurturing, so, yeah.
2: So the, uh, those nature experiences and early Catholic school experiences, what was your family's um, spiritual practice or religious tradition like? Was that similar?
1: Well, actually, um, my mother became Catholic so we could go to Catholic school. Oh, good (laughs) strategy. um, (laughs) Well, you know, my parents did not like the local public schools. They felt like, you know, they weren't the best option. So my father actually was um, three or four generations African Methodist Episcopal. And so that is the church that my parents were attending um, before my mother became Catholic, so we had to go to Catholic school. And then, of course, from the time that um, I started first grade, I had an older brother, so it actually started before then. Um, until high school, I, you know, attended Catholic school. And on occasion, we would visit my father's church. Um, the you know the first A.M.E. Church of Pasadena, California, and it was such a distinct contrast for me that sometimes you know people uh, moving with the spirit or, or or standing up and clapping scared me. Because I was so used to the you know uh, you could hear a, a pin drop uh, of the Catholic you know church and mass, but I I enjoyed uh, the the spirited. Um, Music, you know, gospel music, and um you could it, there was obviously a very deep felt sense in those those times so um so I did that until I graduated from high school and then i I started exploring um other churches, other kinds of experiences um from attending a probably twenty five member Catholic, uh, Baptist church in Santa Cruz, California, I mean really small, yeah um, well sometimes. We didn't even have anybody playing any musical instruments. It was just kind of, you know, flip pattern and uh, yeah. rock. <laughs> um, and then uh, to a, a very large um, AME church in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I was going to graduate school, St. Paul's AME, uh, which was filled with um, students from MIT, you know, mostly African American students from MIT and from the professional and graduate schools at Harvard. And so, it rocked every Sunday, <laughs> um, and it was it was just also a delight to be able to interact with people in a business school or the school of medicine or whatever so Thanks. had some great uh times exploring um, uh, you know sort of different forms of worship and um spirituality um, in those places um and then of course, you know as a university professor. Each time I moved, you know, I found different, um, usually Christian communities. Um, But I will say that when I was in college, um, I had uh, a professor, Jan Willis, who actually taught um, my uh, roommate and I how to meditate, and uh, she's a Tibetan Buddhist scholar, Okay. So we actually had beads, and we had a Sanskrit chant, and we chanted to the deity <laughs> um, Dorchi <and>, uh, <clears throat> Sampa, you know, which is the deity to end all suffering. And so it was really my first introduction to, I would say, spirituality as opposed to religion. Hmm. And I will always be grateful to her for opening that door because it gave me an opportunity to really explore all kinds of spirituality. Um, I was able late, later to um, I did TM um, as I was graduating from college. Um, Transcendental
2: meditation. Transcendental meditation. Yeah, just in case people listening don't know oh. what TM means, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you know,
1: such a common name then, right? You well,
2: know, and it sort of still is if people are immersed in the contemplative meditation world, but. Mm-hmm. Not everybody knows.
1: So, um, and, and I, you know, did TM for a while, but I had the difficulties with um, using a Sanskrit uh, chant, or I should say mantra, that I didn't know what it meant. And, hmm. you know, I wasn't saying anything, right? So I, I assume I wasn't. <laughs> um, and so I kind of, you know, left that for a long time. And it really wasn't until, hmm, I'd say, the mid-'80s when I picked up um, more of a contemplative, you know, Christian uh, approach with um, more contemplative prayer. I actually um, was on leave in Palo Alto and I stumbled across um, a copy of of A Course in Miracles. And, you know, I had several people recommend it. And so I started reading it while I was on leave and I was like, oh my. Um, because it 's very theological. and uh, so and one of its recommendations is that you need to um, spend some time each day with listening to the voice of God because it 's always speaking to us. Mm. Um, so um, that began a, you know on a, a completely different journey of um, exploring more contemplative spirituality
2: cool okay well there 's a lot that I hope I can loop back to and remember in that um but I want to go back to something you or a juxtaposition almost in your experience that I find really interesting, which is between the kind of the silent contemplative and the the more kind of active spirited forms of worship that you, that you, it's from listening to you, it, it sounded like you found the spirit moving in both. And there's, there's a, there's a debate almost, uh, I think a healthy debate, but a debate nonetheless within Christian contemplative practice um, that some uh, might say it has to be silent and others might say, no, the contemplative experience, um, and I know you're familiar with uh, um, her book, I'm forgetting her name now, Barbara, <laughs> Barbara Holmes, yeah, that, um, that the more kind of active, noisy forms of worship can also have a, a kind of interior silence included. So what's your thought on that, that debate, for lack of a better word, or your, how you reconcile that in your own experience?
1: Uh, I think both are true. And I think, unfortunately, when people want something to be a particular way and say, well, you know, it's only, you know, through silence that you can actually have the, this contemplative experience, um, is unfortunate. Um, I, I have read uh, Barbara Holmes's book, and I think she makes a point that if we're talking about contemplation, if we're talking about that moment where we connect with something much greater than ourselves, or we have that uh, uh, experience of unity or oneness. I mean, you know, Maslow, um, uh, Abraham Maslow used to talk about it as having a peak experience, right? That sense of oneness. It can happen Um, In silence, but it can also happen in the middle of a a spirited moment, you know, where all of a sudden you're just feeling that oneness with everybody who's in the room and who's not even there. Yeah. So I think both are true. Um, And I think it's really important for people to find what works for them in terms of having this experience with presence or with. God, or whatever way that they want to, mystery, whatever way that they want to name that, Mm -hmm. my my attitude is that whatever's going to get you there is really what works for you. Now, I will say that, um, and I think this probably um, is connected to my background in psychology, that there is something about, um, you know, quieting the mind um, that allows you to have this experience, Um, but I don't think that qualitatively it's different necessarily. Um, And I also know from, you know, being a spiritual director for 10 years now, that silence is not for everybody. Yeah. And I do tell people who have recently had experienced a trauma or are in the midst of deep grief that let's not try the silence, okay? Yeah. Start out with some other contemplative practices that you might want to engage in. Um, and I think also for people who have been oppressed or traumatized in some kind of way, that when you, when you quiet your mind, when, when you get, become silent, everything boils, bubbles up, right? Not just the good parts, but also the really, de- well, I won't say dangerous, but difficult and painful. So I I know that there are lots of people out there who avoid silence Mm -hmm. because to become silent means that you're going to have to sometimes deal with your woundedness. And sometimes it's just too much. So I appreciate um, the idea that there are other ways for you to connect with God and to have that um, experience of of, of oneness, um, of unity. And, it, you know, it could be in dancing. You know, you think about the whirling dervishes, right? Sure. <laughs> you know, or it can be in, I certainly have had that kind of experience when somebody's singing a beautiful gospel song. Yeah. So, so you know, I think there are a variety of paths and I don't think that uh, silence is, you know, the only path. It certainly is important to me, um, but I think that's because, You know, that was my uh, early experiences. Um, And I'm particularly drawn to stillness, right? And stillness is, you often find stillness outside. So, um, but there are lots of ways, I think, that people can have that kind of um, experience. And, you know, I I, I don't understand why there are debates. (laughs) It's like, okay, right? Why are we arguing about this? As long as as the uh, experience is is one that is... um, you know, uh, healing, and you know you've got that connection and that sense of oneness. I don't, I, I don't care how you get
2: there. Yeah, and God probably doesn't either care how you. Oh, that's get, right. <laughs> Cares that you get there and that you show up. Yeah, in my own teaching, I often emphasize that though there are certain, say, practices that are taught in different lineages or traditions. And that's true, there are different strands of that within the Christian tradition and then there are different strands of it in the broader contemplative tradition that includes other traditions, spiritualities. Um, But that there's as many doorways into that experience as there are people. Um, And even people who are doing the, say, centering prayer are having a different personal kind of experience um, despite the similarities in the practice.
1: You know, and I think that um, what's most unfortunate are those members of the Christian community who perceive meditation as something from the East Mm -hmm. um, and something that, you know, I've had, you know, people come in and say, well, my pastor said this, you know, meditation stuff is devil worship, you know, (laughs) and I'm like thinking, oh my God, goodness, what such deep ignorance because... You know, we do have a rich contemplative tradition within Christianity. And, you know, from be still and know that I am God in the (laughs) Psalms to to many other references. And it's just so unfortunate when people think that that is something that came from someplace else. You know, there is um, an agency now called the Trust for Meditation. Who's dedicated to you know uh, uh, because you're you're connected with them, but just dedicated to helping people understand yeah you know our roots uh, our Western roots of, of you know meditation and contemplative prayer. So I'm rooting I'm rooting for more of that, right? yeah. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I, do, I do think that um you know there's there's this other issue of I think that uh, there are certain individuals um, as pastors who Probably feel that if you can make a direct connection with God, why come to church, right?
2: Well, I and think for, there's always been yeah there's always been a kind of dangerous edge to contemplative prayer, um, and it's it's managed to hang on because it's so clearly of the spirit when it's genuine. Right. But yeah, I think there is a bit of institutional distrust.
1: And mm. and for me, I think that um, and for many people that I work with in spiritual direction. Um, the contemplative prayer deepens one's relationship with God. And as they begin to listen more frequently and more deeply, they're called to a variety of things. It may be to communal worship. It may be to action in some kind of way. Um, there's lots of things. But the point is, are you listening? <laughs> it's yeah. awesome, to me, the most important part.
2: Yeah. Well, I'm an oblate of St. Benedict as well because um, I was sort of formed by the Benedictines, especially in college. Mm-hmm. And um, the first word of the rule of St. Benedict is listen. And yeah. so it's important to keep that in mind as kind of the, the contemplative stance.
1: Yes, yes. And I will say, um, and I think I picked this up probably from The Course in Miracles, that there is a phrase in there that uh, mentions and says, you know, there uh that that phrase from the bible that says uh, many are called but few are chosen mm. should be all are called but do choose to listen
2: <laughs> yeah that's a good way of putting it
1: mm-hmm. yeah hmm.
2: so you've mentioned a bunch of different kind of strands of contemplative practice that you've been exposed to and then you mentioned earlier something sometime around the 80s kind of coming back into that so what what was that process like for you what's Um, Is there a particular, like, form or style of contemplative prayer that you practice? Is it more idiosyncratic? Just kind of curious where, what that looks like for you.
1: Well, it has evolved over the years. Um, I was so grateful when I started seeing um, people offering, centering prayer, because I was like, oh, my, finally, we're going to get there, right? (laughs) There's actually going to be something that people can, can do. So mine has, uh, you know, evolved over the years in terms of, um, I think that I've tried, you know, mantras. I've tried um, the centering prayer approach where, you know, you go back to the word. But more recently, um, I have what I engage in because I've been doing it for about 30 some years is um, I call it the stillness practice. So my idea is to try to still my mind and quiet my heart so that I can hear the voice of God. Hmm. And I know that that voice is not going to be in words. It's the silence. You know, the language of God, I think, is silence. But I can feel that connection. And it doesn't always happen, you know, (laughs) when I sit down, because, you know, we have days when it's just chatter, 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 chatter. Oh, yeah. And then there are other days when you just have this wonderful experience of oneness and, you know, all is well in the world. Um, So, uh, but I, what what I understand is that what's most important is that I am consistent in my showing up for prayer. Um, And I know on occasion at retreats or, you know, doing spiritual direction, somebody will say, oh, Loretta, you're so wonderful. And this is so great, and I'll say, well, the only thing I can take credit for, because in spiritual direction, we do believe that the Holy Spirit is the true spiritual director,
0: right? yeah.
1: but um, the only thing I can take credit for is showing up for prayer every day.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I, can ta- I, I can take credit for that part. <laughs> and the rest of it really doesn't belong to me, but I think the more that we do that, the more there is space in our our chattering minds to hear that voice of the spirit yeah. in whatever ways that it shows up, you know, and it doesn't always show up in the middle of the prayer. It may be later on in the afternoon when you're chopping celery in the kitchen,
0: mm-hmm.
1: or, you know, sometime later at night. Uh, I think, you know, I often get many messages from spirit in the early morning as I'm just waking up. Um, and I will say, well, thank you, Sophia. That's my, uh, Uh, connection with the Holy Spirit, Um, I needed to hear that or whatever. Um, So for me, um, my practice has evolved to this um, sitting every morning. I mean, it's like for me, I cannot leave the house
0: Mm.
1: without some silence. Um, and, And, you know, sort of stopping and pausing maybe for just a minute, um, during the course of the day, um, but also for yielding to spirit or surrendering to spirit, you know, decisions. You know, I don't, I try not to make any decisions myself anymore. And I find that is probably one of the best decisions <laughs> I've chosen because, you know, I don't think, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone in this, but Half the time, I have no idea what's going on, you know? And to assume that I know is, uh, you know, I think the uh, utmost in arrogance. So I have tried to back way up and just, you know, uh, move with the guidance of the spirit as much as I can. Now, does it take practice? Yes, a lot. (laughs) Uh, But um, the more that I do that, you know, the more things kind of just show up when I need them or um, I'm, I'm much more peaceful and joyful, even in, you know, in the, in the middle of uh, crises or trauma. And actually, people tell me all the time, you know, I just, you know, I need Larita to come so that there's some calm in the storm or something, mm-hmm. right? And I just think that practice over and over again over the years you know, just allows you to just—that's the way you become, yes. right? And yeah. the way I—it's rare that I'm, you know, sort of caught up in the chaos of something. Um, and I also have learned as well to turn down um, the volume on the outside world. And so I'm very committed now to teach people more about inner listening and to turn down the volume on the outer world because it's, you know, just the news is toxic yeah and um the less that I listen to that I give it maybe you know the the evening whatever 15 or 20 whatever it is 30 minutes um I watch enough you know local news to make sure I'm not violating some new ordinance (laughs) (laughs) it's like oh let me turn down this this volume and I should also add is I try to do a silent retreat at least twice, maybe three times a year. Mm. I'm about to leave on one on Sunday, four or five days of just get off the grid. Totally.
2: Nice. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned that idea of turning down the volume on the outer outer world. I've been more intentionally doing that myself recently because I've found that, um, you know, if I tune into, the, particularly the news cycle, um, and I we don't even really have we don't have cable at our house. It's, we mostly have you know like movies is about all we use the TV for. Um, but even when I'm like at the gym and I see the what I call the infotainment uh, industry, which is low on the info and high on the tainment, Um mm-hmm. Like even with the volume turned down, I just get anxious. It's like these talking heads that are just trying to keep us all kind of fearful and distracted. And um so I I have found a lot more um calmness uh and saying, Okay, we're gonna be okay as a nation and a world. Um but we it would help immensely, I think, for all of us, even as citizens, to tune that out a little bit.
1: Yes. I I I'm in total agreement. I think that, um, you know, I, one of the things I've learned is that I think we're on a journey, um, spiritual journey, that asks us, are we going to listen to the ego or the Holy Spirit? That's sort of the choice. And, you know, as you look at our current television, it's a lot of ego
0: stuff,
1: mm-hmm. particularly in terms of you know what's most base or ugly about the world we're attracted to that and that sells uh, 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 that's the that, that keeps the ratings up and sells uh advertisements and it's all part of the cycle um so that you know something like this conversation today is not going to make the news <laughs> um, all the times in the in the course of a day that people are actually acting loving towards each other is not going to make the news now do they have a little segment sometimes about, you know, good news or something? Yes. But, but if, you, if you look at that in proportion to the rest of it, it's minuscule. Yeah. So, yeah. But, it's, but it's understandable, you know. Our egos are very distractible. They're very, um, they often attack, you know, we attack ourselves or other people, you know. And this idea, uh, idea of an of a individual being a single entity who's not connected to everybody else or what their actions are is, you know, just in some ways, uh, problematic as an understatement. So, uh, I, I am finding that the more that I'm listening to spirit as opposed to all of that, whether it's going on inside of me or outside of me, mm-hmm. it's my saving grace. I mean, you know, and I think right now we're in a, in a time or an era where, um, the ego has center stage and it's, and, and if you want to know what an ego looks like, we're seeing it right now, right? This yeah. is it.
2: Collectively.
1: Yes, yes, collectively. And so for me, I sort of feel like that, the calling underneath that is, so what is it that I can be doing to counter this? So I just recently posted a blog called Doubling Down on Love.
0: Hmm. Okay.
1: So, and using the physics principle that for every action, there is a reaction, and I'm going to be intentional about the reaction, right?
0: Yeah, right.
1: So, so, I think it's really important, you know, and I talk to people all the time who are so upset and so anxious about, you know, what's on the news, and I say, well, first, I think you need to turn it off from time to time, but second, what is it, what is it, what is it calling you to, you know, what is it calling you to do? Um, about what you're seeing or who you are. I mean, it's like, I think it's an opportunity to step up and um and to do something that perhaps maybe you haven't been doing because, you know, been going along.
2: Yeah.
1: The, you know, just on automatic. Well, no, life is calling you to step up and do something different. Yeah. I
2: mean. Yeah. Well, and I think, too, as you've been talking, that turning down that volume is, is a – it's a small little thing that maybe doesn't seem that significant, but it is a, it's a nonviolent act, right? It's def It's defusing that cycle, taking myself out of it and then doubling down in the opposite direction. Um, that st- I, strikes me. I told you before this interview that one of my goals was to finish reading um, Thurman, Howard Thurman's Jesus and the Disinherited. And I did, I mean, it's not that long, so it's not like a huge thing to clap for, but it's been on my list of books. I need to read and this interview, you know, gave me a deadline. Um, but that, but the way you talked about disengaging from the hate and doubling down on, you know, nonviolent way of taking control of your reaction. Um, that sounds very Thurman to me having just read, having just finished the book. And I know that you have dedicated a lot of your study and, um, writing and teaching to his work. So, um, I've become convinced that he's the most important figure in American history that most people haven't heard of. <laughs> yes. So oh, I hope that this um, podcast is a small way of kind of highlighting his work and how you are uh, carrying on his, his teaching. So take us into that and how you got into Thurman and why he's so important.
1: Right. I, I have to tell you, I was greatly disturbed that I was an educated person, an African-American person of that, even so, um, and uh, had studied uh, in a, spirit, a very prominent spiritual direction program, and was in my late 50s, and I did not know who he was. And I'm I like thinking- a
2: similar experience of, like getting a PhD in theology, having a, a very strong personal interest in spirituality, And I didn't learn who he was until a few years ago. Um, And I was like, how is this possible?
1: (laughs) How did this happen? Yeah. And I have to say, um, as I've been out, particularly in the last year, just retreat after retreat or talk after talk, um, you know, people hear him because I play his voice um, and they, you know, begin to, Listen uh, about his life and the wisdom that he had, and they're like they rush the stage and say, "How did I? How did, how how is it that I have not heard of this man?"
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, so I was finishing up my spiritual direction program and I had to write a final paper, and uh, and I remember uh, talking to a friend of mine who's a, a pastoral counselor, former pastor of a church, and I said, "You know, I just went through this program and I studied." you know, uh, St. John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila, these mystics. I said, don't we have any African or African-American mystics? I mean, come on. <laughs> so he said, you haven't heard of Howard Thurman? I'm like, no. He said, well, you need to go find out about Howard Thurman. <laughs> so um, I, I I think I first um, may have bought his, his autobiography with head and heart, the autobiography of Howard Thurman. I started reading it and I'm like, oh my God. Um, and then uh, I bought uh, Meditations of the Heart for my husband, um, and we started reading them, and I'm like thinking, this is is amazing, and so um, I wrote my paper. I finished my paper um, because I I really wanted to talk about um, his notion of inner authority, which is just amazing, um, and its role in spiritual direction, and then I later published the paper um, in Presence, which is the International Journal for Spiritual Direction, and uh, happened to be um, uh, in a, a prayer circle, contemplative prayer circle with uh, Carl Coleman, who's done a lot of work on um, Christian uh, spirituality, um, mystic- and Christian mystics, and um, you know he he talks a lot about um, Thomas Merton and um, Julian of Norwich, etc. But anyway, we were having a conversation. He said, you know. Uh, maybe we need to do a praying with the mystics, you know, kind of uh, thing together. But nonetheless, he actually uh, referred um, someone to me to do a um, a retreat on the connection between Howard Thurman and Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. For, for their um, Martin Luther King Jr. Day celebration. So that was the first one that I think I did in 2016. Um, and, you know, they there are these lovely connections because – Howard Thurman actually went to school with uh, um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s father. They were both at Morehouse at the same time. And then, um, of course, uh, he wrote Jesus and the Disinherited, which Martin Luther King Jr. read while he was in seminary. And he was like, wow, right? Yeah. And then then King uh, ends up at Boston University, Um, working on his doctorate. And at the time, um, Howard Thurman, uh, I guess it was probably during that time, Howard Thurman was recruited to um, teach there as their first black faculty member and dean of the Marsh Chapel. So they crossed over a year. Um, Howard Thurman was hoping that maybe King would go and replace him at the church that he founded um, the Church uh, Fellowship of uh, All Peoples, which was an uh, intentional interracial church that he founded mm-hmm. in San Francisco. But um, I think King was much more moved by the book, um, Jesus of Disinherited, and really encouraged him to get, you know, become very active with the civil rights movement. And it is said that he carried it with him whenever he
2: marched. That's so what i heard, yeah. Beautiful yeah.
1: connections. The other thing, though, is that... Uh, I suspect that because of um, King's courageous actions, uh, Thurman sort of is a bit overshadowed in sort of American history. However, he's the one who in 1935 went to visit India. He and his wife and uh, two other people spent six months in India. And they, just before they left, they were finally able to sit and talk with Gandhi. And it was so so fascinating. There's a book that's just devoted uh, to that uh, pilgrimage. Oh. Uh, uh, but um, you mean that think...
2: he wrote, or that somebody else wrote about him?
1: Um, no, he didn't write it. Okay. Uh, another two two other people wrote it. I think it's called "Visions of a New World: Howard Thurman's Pilgrimage to India." Okay. Uh, okay. And so uh, basically, uh, they had like a just a small window between the time that they had to leave and um, they could go talk with Gandhi. So, but they, so they got on this train and, uh, they got in like four o'clock in the morning. Um, but I think they only had like, I don't know what it was, three or four hours until they had to catch the train back. Mm -hmm. So his wife and friend, um, Ed, uh, went off to to sleep, (laughs) but Thurman went with Gandhi and they started talking Gandhi had all these questions about, you know, slavery and how did people survive it and just, you know, what about voting? What about interracial marriage, you know? And so uh, Thurman basically gave him the basic um, Negro history lessons. Right? <laughs> so, you know, he sort of, you know, brought him up to date. And then they talked about, um, you know, the notions of nonviolence and of civil disobedience. Um, and it was just an amazing meeting. And somebody... Had, you know, the forethought to actually write it down, you mm. <laughs> no, take notes, um, which, you know, were later published. Um, but, um, they basically, um, Gandhi basically said to him, you know, at the end, he said, you know, perhaps this notion of nonviolence will be realized through the actions of the Negroes in America. Yeah. Uh, that was one of his, yeah. his hopeful prophecy. Um, and, uh, Thurman, uh, uh you know, had a, a vision while he was there at Khyber Pass, sort of a path um, from India into Afghanistan and realized that those all of those people there were his brothers and sisters. Um, and that's when he knew that he needed to go um, come back to the United States and, and start this interracial church.
0: Mm-hmm. So,
1: um, but he's really, you know, some people refer to him as the spiritual architect of the civil rights movement.
0: yeah. Yep. Because
1: it's not clear whether or not, if he had not written Jesus and the Disinherited, if there, you know, if it had, if it would have turned out the way that it did, yeah. So that notion of civil disobedience, and you know, as you read um, Jesus and the Disinherited, um, Thurman talks about the importance of the love ethic, yeah. um, And this notion of people understanding that they're holy children of God. His grandmother, who was a slave. Felt that that notion kept her from, you know, falling apart. This idea that this uh, visiting preacher would tell them he would preach to them and then say, um, "You all are not niggers. You are not slaves. You are holy children of God." So she then, in turn, um, instilled in young Howard Thurman that you are a holy child of God. You know, no matter what anybody else says to you, that is your primary identity. Um, And I think having that kind of identity really helps um, children and adults move through um, life in a very different way, especially if you are a member of a a press group. Um, And it's sort of similar to my experience of the nuns telling us we were all God's children. Mm -hmm. That's what I learned, you know, from first grade on. And so some of the things that came at me later, I kept thinking, "Mm, this doesn't fit with, you know. Yeah. (laughs) My own sense of being a holy child of God. So, but Thurman says in Jesus of the Disinherited that um, our goal is to love people into knowing that they are holy children of God. Which uh, and he and Gandhi both agreed that you know violence is just attack and it just escalates. Yeah. Well, so, but if you can actually find that center within yourself and move from that place. And and, and you sort of begin to see his influence on the training of civil rights marchers, right? Um, but, But holding to that quiet center place. And no matter what happens, whether, you know, people spit at you or throw things at you, you maintain that center of calm. And inside, you know, you are loving these hateful people into some notion that they are also holy children of God. That's a big order for anybody. Um, but certainly um, I think it probably moved the dial much further than if people had been out there, you know, shooting and mm-hmm. attacking.
2: Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, they. that was like a great summary of his life and influence. And I have to, tell you, when I read his autobiography with Head and Heart, and I came to that scene, it's only maybe two or three pages where he talks about his conversation with Gandhi. I stopped reading the book, and every night for at least a month, I just reread his account because it absolutely blew my mind as one of the most important moments in world history. (laughs) And it, it became Lexio Divina for me to just read that account over and over and over again. It was so, I get chills, like goosebumps um, yeah. hearing you describe it. And um, Well, you
1: know, cool. and, and, and one of the other things that happened on that trip was just after they arrived, um, Thurman yeah, this gave this is where I room. wanted
2: to go. Yep, <laughs> I know where you're going. Yeah, I wanted to yes. bring it there.
1: Yes, gave this lecture at a law school um and afterwards he was invited into conversation with i don't know if it was the dean or someone you know at the law another lawyer and he you know this man and basically it it was he was in ceylon so Ceylonese lawyer asking he said like what are you doing here you seem like an intelligent person i mean how can you you know be here representing christianity you know christianity Uh, you know, a religion where you can't even sit next to other Christians in the church and, you know, where these these people stop uh, church services sometimes for lynching. I mean, like, seriously? Mm -hmm. You know, aren't you a traitor to all darker people in the world? Yeah. And what was so lovely was, you know, Thurman was not disturbed at all. In fact, he said, well, I don't, you know, I don't think you've gone as far as as you should in your indictment of Christianity. (laughs) actually, I'm a follower of the religion of Jesus. And, you know, and that's such a turning, that was such a turning point for me because I often had some problems with trying to reconcile the contradictions, like, yeah, you know, like, what? Um, and and so, you know, he, and, I, and, and this idea that there might be uh, some problems with how Christianity has uh, evolved, you know, basically began with, um, a, a tragic incident that happened to him when he was just a young boy. So at age seven, you know, his father worked for the railroad. He came home one day. His father came home one day and he had pneumonia. And so for the next three or four days, you know, he was going back and forth. And um, Thurman was actually in the room when his father passed away. Mm. And so, um, but his father was, a, was more of an intellectual than a religious man. Who did a lot of reading, um, but he did not go to church. And so um, when they got ready to, um, um, to do the funeral, the, the church, the local Baptist church that his mother and grandmother and he went, attended, um, said, oh, well, no, we can't have his funeral here because he didn't go to church. And so, uh, so they finally got a, um, a visiting preacher to uh, preach the funeral because his, his grandmother was a very prominent member of that community and of the church. Um, and she basically went to the deacons and said, look, <laughs> you know, we're going to have to do something. And so, so this visiting this uh, uh, minister said, well, I'll preach to them. But then, of course, he takes the opportunity to condemn um, Howard Thurman's father, Paul mm-hmm. Thurman, to hell because he was not in the church. And so at, and, and at that time, Thurman basically said, look, I'm not ever going back to church. Right? <laughs> you know, I'm done. But... Um, it did make him question most of his life about what kind of religion is this that condemns someone for not going to church, right? Um, and then, you know, began to see these other contradictions. And, and, you know, you can actually listen to some of his comments about Jesus and the Disinherited on the, uh, in the virtual listening room that they have, you know, the digitized uh, tapes of his sermons and lectures, um, on, at Boston University so this is a digitized library, but he says that you know he, he, Jesus was a companion for him for years, and that he he prayed to God, but he talked to jesus mm. and um, and he said in his um, experiences with Jesus, it was nothing like what he was seeing playing out in the Christian church in the United yeah. States all time right? yeah. <laughs> so his idea was that something happened and it's, he said, it's, I'm not sure if it's uh, some, you know, distortions or problems with the religion or the people who are carrying it. I don't know where it is, but there's a problem here.
0: Mm-hmm. So,
1: and, and, you know, Jesus and disinherited is basically the result of his trying to understand, you know, what's going on with Christianity.
2: Well, and one of the things that I'm really struck with having just finished the book like many really profound ideas, it's deceptively simple. But he does not, he refers in that book to the religion of Jesus and unpacks what that means in his interpretation, um, and then distinguishes that from, you know, the the racist practices and, and thoughts that accrued to the Christian tradition that are not congruent with the religion of Jesus. And that is such a simple small shift but it's really powerful for kind of working to to purify you know what's essential to this spiritual religious tradition and what's cultural baggage just like in our contemplative prayer you know like Thomas Keating talks about evacuating and unloading the unconscious I think there's a similar kind of thing that happens collectively when enough people are engaged in this Critical analysis in the context of prayer. Um, So that that is really stuck with me as a really powerful. um, I don't want to call it a concept because it's that reduces it to merely an intellectual thing. Right. I don't know what to what the word is, but it's. I don't think
1: there's a word. that's (laughs) That's partly because it's so transcendent. It's so into another way of, uh, of looking at things or another reality, that there is no word for it, yeah. right? You know? Yeah. And, and I think that, um, you know, this idea that, well, you know, there's Paul and he had a totally different experience as a citizen of the state, that it's not surprising that he might, you know, say some things that sort of helped to reinforce the status quo of the time. Yeah. You know, and he doesn't necessarily attack or accuse, him. he's just saying, you know, this this may be be what happened is that you know you have someone who who takes up the mantle but has had a very di- different experience than Jesus did of being an oppressed Jew in a Roman occupied state. Yeah. So um, I think that um, and and his you know and I I just feel like Howard Thurman was just like brilliant beyond himself. <laughs> Or time.
2: Way ahead of his time, yeah. Oh, yeah. and I
1: mean, and I think he's very I, relevant now, right? Yeah. He's More so ahead now. of our
2: time still.
1: Yeah. Oh, <laughs> listen, it, it, I, I don't want to digress too much, but in his um, book, The Creative Encounter, he's talking about neurotheology in the 50s.
0: Mm.
1: <laughs> it's like, you know, but he, you know, he doesn't necessarily call it, he doesn't name it neurotheology, but that's sure. what it is. Right? Yeah. if you have enough encounters with God, it's going to change the way in which your brain works, right? Wow. You know. <laughs> but anyway, huh. um, but but I think that um, this um, this idea that Jesus was um, was in that transcendent space as well, and that his focus was really on the inward center of people, on their spirits, and not their conditions, and not you know, sort of like don't let anybody take your spirit or your mind and if they know what kind of insult to hurl at you that is going to disturb you and make you do something perhaps violent or get you killed under those kind of conditions mm-hmm. then they have you mm-hmm. so he and that's where that this notion of inner authority comes in it's like <clears throat> protect your center protect what he calls um you know the island with the angels with the flaming swords right because anything that makes it into this island is only done so with your consent. You know, so, you know, it's kind of like, and I think this is what we gain when we do contemplative prayer or engage in contemplative practices is that we begin to gain this inner strength so that we can protect ourselves from whatever attacks or whatever else other people are hurling at us to keep us in line with the status quo. Um, And uh, And and really, from a psychological standpoint, it's such an important notion. It's like if somebody has your mind, if somebody has your spirit, you belong to them after that. So what he's saying is that Jesus was trying to liberate people at that level, you know, and to help them to understand that they were holy children of God, and that if they could hold to that, you know, if they could not be defined by the Romans as poor Jews or whatever, else that people want to define people as, but that, as, as, you know, that you can hold on to this this inward center um, and live from that place, as opposed to from these other definitions of self, then you, you know, are free. You're liberated. It is true. You know, liberation theology, even and I don't even want to use those terms because again, it reduces it to something else, mm-hmm. but it's like, the more that we know who we are in God, we the less uh, um, imprisoned or, um, what's the other word that I wanted to use? Um, uh, uh, hostage to the world. To whatever else other people are out there that want to dump on you and keep you in your place. Um, and so Thurman being able to, um, I, and I, I, I've been working on a little piece that's called "The Religion of Jesus is uh, Genius," and Howard Thurman is brilliant to point it out.
2: Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
1: because you know, I, I don't. I, I think he was really one of the first people to sort of say, "Let's really pay attention to what Jesus is doing here." You know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it, it's 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 a different a different way of of looking at that.
2: So. Yeah. Well, so I'm curious. You've talked about your own experience of reading Thurman and clearly being really empowered in your own work in that. And you've talked a, a couple times. You've made references to kind of the psychological side of things. And I know we kind of skipped earlier your what most of your adult life career as a psychologist and a professor. But how does that play into the way you're interpreting and teaching and living out this contemplative way?
1: Well, um, I, I think that, just as I just said, I think that the more we are um, engaging in contemplative prayer or contemplative activities or places and spaces that connect us with that sense of presence, the more transforming it is of who we think we are so one of the things that I studied um, as a um, researcher, um, I was most interested in identity and self-concept
0: mm. and
1: particularly for people who are stigmatized mm-hmm. because stigma is basically arbitrary, you know, in terms of what's stigmatized and what culture and what historical period, etc. So when babies arrive, um, they don't know that they are Asian or African or your, whatever, right? They have to learn that. So, and, and to put it in Richard Rohr's terms and other people who have talked about um, true self, false self, you have this container and all the things that, that society believes and media believes and your parents believe, it all goes into this container as people communicate to you who you are. So you construct, or I shouldn't say you construct, a self is constructed for you. Yeah. It becomes, you know, you just, that's who you are, and that's how, that's, you live from that, right? So the more you can open up another pathway, um, maybe a more direct connection with God, I think it begins to, to, it allows you to begin to cultivate a more spiritual self, right? And begins to kind of, expand more because you know whatever you focus on expands so it gets to expand more and you become a, um, more of this uh, holy child of God or uh, a more authentic version of who you truly are because you know a lot of things that people lay on us uh, some people call it raced or genderized or whatever you want to call it are not necessarily true about us certainly we don't resonate with that and so The more that I've engaged in my contemplative practice, the more true I am to myself, my real self, and not to this constructed self that people thought I should be, you know, as a result of whatever categories I was in, whether they be female or African-American or professor, you know, I have lay that one on me, right? You know, whatever it is. Um, the, the, and their stereotypes and their expectations. And, you know, I always say that identity is negotiated in the interaction. So if somebody comes at me with something, mm. uh, it's not me. I come back with who I am and they have to kind of, you know, uh, restructure that or rearrange that. Um, And so uh, I think that, uh, you know, the um, regular practice of connecting with um, presence has allowed me to be transformed from the inside out Mm. um, and uh, move through the world more powerfully because I'm not being tripped up by other people's notions of who I am. Mm. Um, That doesn't mean I have to correct them. That just means I need to be who I am. And they either get corrected or the person walks away or whatever. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: But, it's, but it's very, and they, they are doing that based on who they think they are. Um, and so to give you uh, uh, an example that many people can, can understand, many people, many men believe that they have to be better than women. That's just embedded in the mean of being a male. Or many people, uh, many white people believe that they have to be better than a black person, because that's embedded. We don't talk about it, but sure. it's embedded in the meaning, it's right?
2: It's implicit, yeah.
1: Yeah, so then when you encounter someone who counter, contradicts your stereotypes about that category, you either have to discredit or dismiss them. Sometimes people will attack them, but um, in the better circumstances, they're transformed. Mm-hmm. Because then they have to go back and question what was this meaning that got embedded into this identity? That's a false identity in the first place. Um, you know, there, uh, in, in in my work on um, identities, and I talk a little bit about this in the chapter um, called uh, Dissecting Racism, Healing Minds and Cultivating Spirits and Living into God's Dream, um, that uh, pe- people um, operate from these notions and Um, And so they're constantly having to prop up whatever it is that they believe about who they are. But when they have an encounter, then that means that they either have to change the self, which then becomes the basis of reality for them. Mm. And that's why, you know, because one of the questions I ask is why is there so much animus around, you know, race? You know, people are angry. Um, and, And in part it has to do with the fact that you are threatening my, notion of reality when you show up in a way that's different than I expected you to. Yes. Right? So um, And that works for all kinds of categories um, and, and all over the world. I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be just, you know, gender or race. I mean, in another culture, it might be, you know, one tribe versus another tribe or, you know, one region of the country versus another region of the country. So, you know, it's operating all the time. Um, And uh, that's, I'm a strong advocate of people um, pursuing and working on their spiritual selves. You know, it's just something that gets ignored somehow or other um, along the way, even though, you know, people may go um, and engage in all kinds of um, religious training or perhaps maybe in um, Bible study or whatever. But what do you know of yourself as a spiritual being? Um, and so the more that we are, are, are looking into that, um, the more that we can excavate that. Because basically I think of this constructed self as something that covers that up. Mm-hmm. So the more we can peel off these layers of the constructed self, the more that then we can live from this more spiritual self. And you know, once you discover that, you're in a whole nother territory. Mm-hmm. In terms of how you respond to you about, you know, you know about yourself and or other people, yeah. you know, other people become less threatening. And I think we become more compassionate and more loving, you know, and it just sort of kind of counteracts this other self that got, you know, that, that, that was given to us, you know, along the way in a variety of different ways.
2: Hmm. Okay, wow. I'm going to replay that one to myself later because that was that was brilliant. But I I was thinking about the the different kinds of encounters that you were describing and how in in those encounters, if we don't have a touch point for that spiritual self where we can be in control of our response, I think that's often where we get triggered into trying to this, this person or this encounter is threatening my sense of identity or what I think about the world. And if I'm not aware that that's happening, then I'm going to push back and that, Um, that can be overt violence or more subtle forms of violence or exclusion. So if we're able to be in that encounter, but in touch with that, that true self or that deeper self, that inner authority to use Thurman's word, then we actually have the freedom to respond in new and creative ways. That's, am I, does that sound correct according to how you think of it? Yes. Um,
1: And then I want to extend um, Thurman's, notion a little bit more and I've been doing this um, more frequently in retreats and that is that so one side of the equation is the protection of that inner self but I will say too um, that a lot of this involves Mm self-reflection and if you're not willing to engage in some self-reflection you're probably not going anywhere certainly not you know being able to be transformed by this But I think that those people who are drawn to certain contemplative practices, it it, it sort of requires a bit of self-reflection. Yeah. And those people that aren't, then they're probably going to just continue to sort of be on this automatic um, place. But so if you look at the other side of the equation, what I've discovered is that once you understand that there's this spiritual self that you have and you begin to cultivate it, if you then begin to move through life with spirit, and I'm talking about this with a capital S.
0: <laughs>
1: that is, listening Sophia. for God. Sophia, she is my best girlfriend. <laughs> uh, E.F.F. Right. Um, so we're moving along together, and as a result, we are able to move through more difficult situations because I am not depending upon my own understanding to use a scriptural term but I am listening for guidance, listening for the words, listening for the actions that I need to engage in so that a more healing outcome occurs. So um, to give you an example, and I think it's very useful for people who are perhaps are involved in an abusive relationship or or a person who's um, on the job with, you know, perhaps a unkind boss or supervisor. Or uh, perhaps it's a young person who wants to make a decision that is against what the family wants them to do. If you can engage with Sophia and and she's guiding you about what to say, what to do, and when, then you can begin to be free of these kinds of circumstances and uh, move towards living a life in which you are living out your calling. Hmm. I think we're all called. Every single person is called um, to do something, to be a part of, I think, a greater plan. I would say, what a capital P, right? That, you know, God has has provided for us to heal the world. Everybody has a role in that. doesn't matter who you are. Um, but you have to listen for what your role is. I spent half of my life thinking, oh, I'm going to be the next Freud. <laughs> <laughs> when I discovered, you know, about 25 years ago, when I was, I, I was having a heart transplant, mm. that I, that was not my role. So, for example, I was having my own garden of gethsemane experience at my house. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, we're down to the, okay, we're going to have to do this. Oh, my God, you know. And, and I'm like, oh, God, why me? Why me? And this little voice inside of me said, "Why not you? You know, maybe this is your role in the plan. Maybe you're not. Maybe you didn't come into this lifetime to be the next Freud. Freud was Freud. He's already taking care of that, right? You need to be Larita, and maybe having this transplant is what is part of your role in the plan.
0: Mm.
1: And I, I, I tell you, Tom, that every single thing associated with that, you know." Uh, insurance, medical, medication costs, um, being awful, all of it was taken care of. And so here I am now, 23 and a half years later, right? And I think part of that was for me to get through all of that so that I could be a living testimony to moving and listening to Sophia, right? It's right there. It's like we have the red slippers on already right? We don't Mm. need all that
0: stuff.
1: Mm. Most people don't realize that they're walking around with this internal resource available available to them anytime. Mm. But, you know, and I understand it because I was off doing my little ego trip for a long time because it was about making a name for me, right? But at a certain point, particularly if you're down on the map several times, you know, was it, Richard Rohr that says great suffering or great love results in spiritual awakening?
0: Yeah. I'm
1: thankful for the transplant because it was the greatest spiritual awakening that I've ever had. And and, and all the other medical challenges since then, kidney transplant and bowel mm. replacement and pacemaker, all of that, right? So really grateful for the, that because now I'm listening. It's <laughs> like, okay, I got it, right? I'm listening And I feel like now I'm living out my calling. Part of my calling is to encourage people to listen and also to promote Howard Thurman.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And in doing that, your, your own voice is coming through in your own spirit. I mean, I mean, I, I can see the energy and the joy in your face and I bet people listening can hear it. So when you go through that, I'm sure there's more on the litany of, you know, health issues that you've had. The fact that that spirit is flowing through all those challenges is really, that's a powerful statement just by you being awake and using your voice. So thanks for sharing that. <laughs> well, um, it,
1: usually, it usually wakes people up like, what? You
2: know? Yeah.
1: But I think that, again, the more we cultivate that spiritual self, the more spirit is moving and flowing through us. Even though, you know, you have to do all these things, checkups and procedures and all that other stuff, you do it in a, di- a different sort of way because the vital energy is of the spirit. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, not, it's not the body stuff. It's the spirit stuff. Yeah.
2: Do you know that poem by Marianne Williamson about your own greatest fear is not that you're inadequate? But the line at the end that's making me think of it right now listening to you talk is, how does she put it? She says... Um, when you, when you wake up and liberate yourself, you unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. Yeah. And that, that's what I hear coming through listening to you talk. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the last couple of retreats I've done, people come up to me later and said that was transformative. And as far as I'm concerned, it wasn't, it wasn't me, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? It was like spirit came into the room and took over and I just, you know, um, and was a part of the experience with them. And, and now, it's like, I feel like, it's not about me promoting myself. It's about me promoting something that's going to help heal the world. Right. And I just happen to be the conduit, the messenger. Um, and it's so much more joyful that way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's, 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 it's uh, liberating because I don't have to do all the stuff, right? I don't have to be on Twitter and Facebook every day promoting something because, when spirit is moving, she will set up everything that you need to be doing um, right on time. Mm. I, and so, you know, I mean, I, you know, will we'll partake every now and then, but I don't have to.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, mm. But I mean, it so, takes, I mean, I, I think it takes a, a certain amount of practice and a certain amount of trust yeah. um, in that. In 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 spirit to be able to then live that kind of life.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And I've been, like I said, I've been on the mat a couple of times, and I was only by as far as I said, it's only by grace that I woke up right, from whatever surgery I was
0: having. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so I realized that it's not me. Yeah. You know, I'm not, and certainly not in control of it.
2: Yeah. So here's something I'm thinking about while we're talking. Um, so. Something that the civil rights movement um, and, and Gandhi's movement in India did particularly well that I think is rare is um, they, they harnessed all of the, the transformative encounter and inner and strength that you're talking about it. And they did that in a way that was public and social. They created spaces where people of any background could step into that was outside of the narrow confines of their culture and Mm -hmm. it's, and it's blind spots, it's hatreds. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And I think we're so damn hungry for that right now. Yes. Where do you you see that happening? I mean, I, I hear it in listening to you. I know it's happening in local movements and things like that, but where, where do you see it?
1: Well, first I want to just say, and I, I can't take credit for this quote, I think it's by Bernard Alvarez is a social movement without a spiritual base is just an angry mob. Mm. And so one of the beauties of the civil rights movement and even of the movement in India was that there was something, some, it, it was for some higher purpose. Right. And, um, and it was grounded, you know, in spirit. Um, and I think when something is grounded in spirit, just like I just said, you're moving with spirit. it it has a certain kind of force and energy to move things in a certain direction. Um, And so today, I think, uh, uh, particularly the movement that is interested in the relationship between contemplation and compassionate social action is one of the ways in which there can be movement um, transformation. But again, you're doing it with spirit. You're not doing it on your own accord. And uh, what is most useful is, uh, you know, surrendering to spirit about when and where, you know. And I and I mentioned to people quite a bit, um, particularly in the with the civil rights movement. Not everybody was on the street. Yeah. There were people who were cooking. There were people who were taking care of kids. There were people who were putting people up. And so people knew their roles. And the beauty of Howard Thurman is that he knew he was not Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> He, that was not his role. you know he was at the march on Washington, but he was not a speaker. You know, he understood that um, his role was to be hold the spiritual space. Mm. all these other people that he influenced, you know I mean, and he influenced a number of people in the civil rights movement. so um and and to 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 give you a, a such a poignant example, you know, um, Martin Luther King Jr. was um, stabbed in 1958 by a deranged woman in Harlem, and he said he had a visitation, which I think that, um, how I, I recently read uh, him saying that he had certain clairvoyant sense, um, and so he had this visitation around King, and so he went, uh, he packed up and went to visit him, um, I think in the hospital, either in the hospital of Montgomery, I can't remember which one, but. Um, and he said, you know, this movement that you have started or is going, has has taken on a life of its own. And I really do think you need to take some time uh, to think about what your role is going to be in that. Mm. Um, and they say it's one of the few times that King took some time off. I don't know if it was six weeks or six months, but he did, or some quiet, you know, and some reflection, Um, And then soon after that, he went to India to study, you know, the principles of nonviolence. Wow. But so what's important, and I cannot overemphasize the fact, is that, yes, there are all kinds of ways in which we can move the world forward, but it needs to be in concert with spirit. Um, Because as far as I'm concerned, and I, I would agree this about myself, I don't know what's going on. And I don't, I don't, I, I can't, I can only see the picture from my view. I can't see the bigger picture, right? I do believe that there is a bigger picture. There is a bigger plan that is way beyond me. And to think that I know what is the best thing to do at any time, again, it's just ridiculous arrogance on my part <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, the, you know, to know what might need to happen in five years or what happened someplace else or what, I just, I don't, no one has all that knowledge, but spirit does. Mm. And so when we choose to listen for what it is that we are being called to do and to go do that, I mean, certainly in my lifetime, I have in, engaged in on the street demonstrations. I don't do as many you know, as I used to just because I have physical limitations <laughs> and I don't need to be locked up in a jail without my medication, right? So, so I understand like Thurman did, that that's not my role, but I can certainly write, and I can certainly lead retreats, and I can certainly encourage and hold the spiritual space for other people who are being called to do that. So it's just a matter of you understanding what you're what you're being called to do, and the bigger, core, of course, one is surrendering, right? I mean, what what is what is our, our, our little self or our ego, but I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And it 's that that we have to curb and realize that it's not about me, you know it 's about what it is that spirit is calling me to do, um, and to not assume that we always know you know what the answer is or what the, or even what the method is mm. so um, I would say absolutely, this is um, a time, and I assume that we will continue to see. Um, uh, a variety of, of uh, protests and, and movements, But I think, again, and I want to emphasize this, is that we need to pay attention to what is on the center stage, right? That, that What we're seeing right now is just ego reveling in itself. And some of that, because, you know, we all are projecting, not all the time, but a lot of time, what in that that we're seeing is something in us that we need to let go of. Mhm right you know is it you know i am not gonna name the various things that it could be, but you know uh is it uh, you know um our own self importance is it um our uh, uh, desire to um- uh, uh have authority over other people what is it um and I do think that paying attention. You know, I, I'd like to, to, you know, to ask people to live that with, with in all caps. Because, you know, I mean, even as a professor, I realized at some point that I was really, you know, gaining a lot from my own self-importance as a professor, right? I had my own little, you know, group, you know, group of, um, of groupies not not to say that students are groupies, but you understand what I'm saying. Oh, yeah, about. yeah. For the queendom for, you know, a semester or whatever, right? <laughs> and, um, and, and there was great, you know, power in some ways in, you know, being um, sort of over these people. But, you know, um, it shouldn't be about our own self-importance. It's a much, it's, you know, it's, it's always bigger than us. So, you know, I think that, we need to encourage. I mean, we need to pay attention to what's going on right now and say, "Okay, so what part of that is me that I don't want to look at?" <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, I could keep going forever on this stuff, but I, okay. I'm recognizing the time as well. And you probably um, so. There's a couple of questions I like to ask everybody kind of towards the mm-hmm. end, um, and these are like um, fill-in-the-blank. Rorschach block test here. (laughs) um, How would you finish this sentence? Contemplation is.
1: Contemplation is being present to the presence, which is always available to us. I mean, we can have contemplative moments washing the dishes if we're present. Right? So anytime that we are completely present in the moment, we are having a contemplative experience. Mm.
2: The purpose of contemplation is all about
1: transforming us from the, the from physical beings into spiritual beings, at least the awareness of that.
2: Mm. Is there a word or a phrase that captures the heart of your own experience of contemplative prayer?
1: Peace and joy. Can I use two words?
2: Sure. (laughs) I think I said word or phrase. So, yeah. yeah.
1: Peace and joy that I think we were created um, with that as part of our natural inheritance. And my goal is to, is to experience that all the time as opposed to fleeting moments.
2: Mm. Cool. So what's your hope for the next generation of contemplative practitioners?
1: Um, I hope that they can continue the work of transforming the, and healing the world. You know, there's quite a bit that has occurred. Um, there's obviously a lot of work to be done. Um, and I think, um, because I think what's been lying sort of in the, un, in the collective unconscious is, has been brought up. And it's a feeling of that that I think this uh, young contemplative generation can assist in by engaging in a regular contemplative practice and listening (laughs) to what they are being called to do. You know, there's that famous um, Howard Thurman quote about um, um, don't ask the world, you know, uh, what needs to be done. Um, but, what, but, at, but do what makes you come alive because what the world needs are people that come al- have come alive.
0: Yeah. Well, that's
1: another way of saying, you know, listen from the inside out about what you are being called to do. And when you do that, you will be more alive and with more peace and joy.
2: Yeah. Well, I'm fairly confident that people listening are going to pick up on that and start tuning into that thanks to your channeling of that spirit so thank you so much
1: you're very
2: welcome i'm gonna go back and listen myself
1: (laughs) (laughs) well you know i have a i have a um and you know you can play this or whatever it'll be in the notes but i i have a book uh coming out in um early next year that is called heart talk learning to listen to inner wisdom and one of the things that i did to cope with my um, heart transplant was to talk to my heart, you know, in conversation. And the wisdom, you know, that occurs if you just sit down and decide you're going to have a conversation with your heart is incredible. I mean, you know, it's sort of like the entryway to the spirit, right? Yeah. Um, and for those who um, perhaps are not comfortable with those kind of terms, well, then just sit down and have a conversation with your heart because it will tell you the truth. <laughs> yeah. And. Uh- <laughs> You know, you can take any question you want to the heart, but it usually will take you a little bit deeper to, you know, the, the root of what it is that you're asking. Um, but they are conversations that I had with my old heart as I was preparing to let it go and conversations with a new heart from somebody else that I did not know at all. Huh. And so, um, and again, with the emphasis on l- uh, learning to listen to inner wisdom, right?
2: Yeah. Wow.
1: Mm. <laughs> so I'm excited about
2: that yeah and such a graphic way of not graphic in a bad way but like the literal f- sense in which you're talking about it like physically transplanting a heart um, we forget that it, it is that physical and embodied it's not just some touchy feely spiritual thing Right. It, it dwells there in that physical space yes
1: mm. so um, you know it's just a technique um, called active imagination, you know, that they often uh, use in a variety of contexts. But um, I, I I was advised to, because um, I couldn't decide whether or not I really wanted to do it. And I was advised to talk to my heart about it. And that just led to a whole another world of, you know, gaining some, again, listening from the inside, right. Um, uh, just a sense of inner wisdom and, uh, you know, we just have it. It's just all around us. But like I said, the, we need to you know, continue to practice that listening.
2: Wow. All right. Well, people are going to listen to this and get a lot out of it. So thank you so much for your time.
1: You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed having this conversation with
2: you. Me too. Yeah. Thanks again for tuning in to Contemplate This. And be sure to check out the show notes over at thomasjbushlack.com. Forward slash episode nine. That's the number nine. For info about Dr. Brown's blog and her publications and links to some additional resources about Howard Thurman. Once again, I'm so overwhelmed with gratitude for all the support and downloads the show is receiving. Thanks to those of you who have donated, helped to spread the word to others, submitted reviews on iTunes and elsewhere. As always, your support helps me to keep making good stuff for the world, and if you have the means and are so moved, you can submit a secure free will offering or donation to the podcast at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash donate. Finally, though I haven't mentioned it much on this podcast, I have some free donation-based courses that are intended to provide you with additional support If you're seeking to deepen your contemplative practice and to link that with compassionate social action, feel free to check those out. There is a link to online learning at thomasjbuschlack.com, or you can go straight to those resources by clicking over to www.contemplative-u.com. So that's the word contemplative, then a dash, and the letter u.com. Until next time, thanks for tuning in, and may you be well, may you find peace and serenity in your days and in your practice, and may you let your compassionate heart shine out into a world in need of healing. Thank you so much.